Hey, everybody. Let me welcome you to our online worship services. Man, I, I talk to so many of you every week who are just staying engaged through this process. And I'm so thankful that social distancing doesn't mean spiritual distancing. You know, believe it or not, we've been worshiping together like this for 15 weeks. And friends, we've got a global pandemic we're trying to deal with here. But, you know, even though our worship centers are closed, you know, our ministry is still running wide open. And man, we are making an amazing difference as a church because of you and our church, you know, one church in 10,000 locations these days. Uh, for example, let me tell you, we had three members of our Compassion family pass away this week in two days. And it was just brutal. Uh, one of them was a 96-year-old charter member of our church, Priscilla Dusham. Uh, she and her husband, Leslie, literally were here the first year our church started. Priscilla's been serving our church for 56 years. She went to be with the Lord this past week. Uh, another one of those deaths was a, just a wonderful, deeply devoted young single woman in her 30s. You know, Tara Hughes uh, just courageously fought the good fight uh, against a rare form of cancer. And I'm telling you, she continued to serve even through all that treatment, all that stuff with the joy of the Lord uh, in a way that was inspiring. I'm telling you, right up to the minute just about she left to go to be in heaven. And then we also lost a little tiny baby this week uh, down at our Midway campus. And friends, this has been a tough week. And, and you know, it's been a lot of grief. And of course, you know, when you love much, you grieve much. Uh, that's the way Jesus was with his friends when they died. And that's how we are too. But you know, I am so thankful for everybody who has helped bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. You know, Jesus said, a new commandment I give you, love one another as I have loved you, love one another. By this will all men know that you're my disciples if you love one another. And I just wanna say thank you to everybody who has prayed or called or supported anybody who's hurting this week. Now you gotta know, there's a ton of grief and unrest in our culture these days. And I've been reaching out to some of my friends just saying, man, how you feeling? How you doing with all of this? And can I just say, if you have to, uh, you've been the hands and loving heart of Jesus to somebody this week, way to go, man. And can I also just say, thank you, thank you, thank you for your consistent generosity. Man, this is amazing. But you know, over the last 15 weeks that we've been in this uh, shutdown, our PAC ministry has distributed 40 thousand bags of food to needy kids in the last 15 weeks. You know, we're sending food out to kids who struggle with hunger, you know, food insecurity. And man, that was back when they were in public school getting two meals a day at school. Now school's been out for months. And I'm telling you, if it were not for the generosity and the service of people just like you, God only knows where these kids would be eating. Uh, and I think they would not. And you know, Jesus said, when you care for a child, a needy child like that, that's like caring for him. I'm telling you, Jesus takes that super personal and I just wanna say thank you, thank you, thank you for all that you've done. And listen, your generosity is not only helping us you know, with people here locally, but globally as well. Listen, we've got folks that we've put on airplanes this week to send them back to Africa uh, and to Poland, uh, you know, global partners who've been with us through this, uh, you know, pandemic, but now they're going back to their place of service and we'll continue to serve with them. And man, just thank God for you and the way we've been able to, uh, to support them because of your generosity. And then next week, you're going to be thanking me. Listen, next weekend is Father's Day. And man, we're going to hit pause for a minute on our, Ephesians, uh, our Galatians series and have a special Father's Day service. And I've asked my buddy, Kenny Grant, y'all take a look at this, uh, two good looking ball headed men here at the same time. Y'all getting this, right? 
Uh, I've asked my buddy Kenny Grant if he will come and speak to all the dads at our church on Father's Day. Listen, if you don't know Kenny, you are going to love this. Uh, Kenny is a great friend of our church. He is a, a really powerful partner in ministry. He's an amazing communicator, and you are going to love this next week. So, man, don't miss our Father's Day service with Kenny Grant. And then later on Father's Day, we're going to have a baptism service at 6 o'clock on Father's Day here at Henderson and at our Statesboro campus. And listen, if you've never been baptized into Christ on the basis of your faith, I want to encourage you to join all these folks. I, I love this picture. This is a... Two, three generations represented right here. It's amazing. But friends, if you've never been baptized on the basis of your faith, I hope you'll take advantage of this opportunity. Man, just go to the uh, online connect uh, spot on our chat or on our uh, uh, website right now and just fill that out. And man, we'll contact you. Uh, we'll get everybody organized. And, and friends, this is going to be the first time we're gathering back together as a church. And we're doing it to, to honor Christ in baptism and and after the baptism service, we're going to spend some time praying for our nation. I don't think our nation has ever felt more divided than it feels right now. There's never been more grief than we have right now. And so, friends, uh, we're going to spend some time in prayer. And, and I hope you'll come back and join us for this. Now, we're going to do all of this outside. Uh, so bring your own lawn chair. Uh, we'll probably have something for you to help you with your kids if you bring them. But, you know, prepare to fellowship at a safe social distance. But we're going to do this by the lake at Henderson and at Statesboro. And man, we want you to come out and join us for that. It's going to be awesome. Now, before we get into Galatians chapter 2, I know many of you have been praying and fasting with us about when we can reopen our worship centers and then re-engage our public worship. And friends, we've been praying and fasting about this for guidance. And we believe that guidance has come. A plan is coming together. And I want to tell you all about it at an online family meeting on Monday night, the night after Father's Day, June 22nd. Now, I know there are some churches that have already restarted worshiping in public, and they've got 10, 20, 30 percent of their church showing up. Uh, and you've got to know the smaller the church is, the easier that is to pull off. But friends, we've been fasting and praying about a plan, and I want to share that with you on Monday night and just let you know how, what our plan is to resume public worship. But today... Uh, today, we're going to continue in our study of the amazing book of Galatians. So, man, listen, grab your Bible and turn to Galatians chapter 2, all right? Galatians chapter 2 is where we're going to start out. And listen, if you don't have a Bible, get one. I mean, just get one. You need one that you can mark up and leave to your kids, right? Or listen, you could download the U version right now. Matter of fact, you can download this from the chat right now. If you just go to our chat, uh, look at the bottom where it says Bible, you can start downloading that. And man, it'll be a blessing to you. Uh, friends, this is your roadmap for life, okay? And you need to get a hold of one of these things. We do these expository uh, Bible studies, you know, almost every year where we'll go through a book and we'll just take it verse by verse, chapter by chapter. Uh, and that's what we're going to do today. Uh, we're going to continue that study in the book of Galatians. Now, scholars tell us that Galatians was the first book that Paul wrote. And let me tell you, it's the feistiest book he ever wrote, too. I mean, brother wrote this thing with an attitude. I mean, as you read through, you're going to see he's kind of worked up. Now, he wrote to Galatians because he was disturbed about a theological threat that he believed could not only hurt the, hurt the church, but it could, you know, if people fell for it, land people in hell because they would end up putting their faith in a counterfeit gospel with no saving power. Now, you know the best lie is always wrapped in the truth, and the best counterfeit is really hard to tell from the real thing. 
And so this spurious teaching that Paul says in verse four, you know, arose because some false brothers infiltrated our ranks. He thinks it's dangerous and he ain't having it. <laughs> so friends, in this chapter, you're going to see some amazing, awkward, confrontational ministry as the apostle Paul just stands up for the gospel. And I thank God that he did. So look at verse one. We're going to, we're going to start in verse one. And honestly, this chapter starts pretty abruptly. Look at what it says. 14 years later, I went up again. All right, so there's obviously a backstory here we're gonna to have to unpack. He said, I went up again to Jerusalem, this time with, Jeru with Barnabas, and I took Titus along also. I went in response to a revelation. That means that Jesus told him to go, right? Uh, and I said before them, wh whoever the folks were in Jerusalem, the gospel that I preached to the Gentiles. Now, friends, there's a lot to unpack in this chapter. And I mean, we're going to dump a big load of truth today and you're going to be smarter when this is smarter when this is all over. But you're going to need to buckle up and take on the attitude of a student today. And we're just going to go through this chapter almost verse by verse. So here we go. Now, I really appreciate Pastor Ken's message on Galatians 1 last week. And if you missed it, when you read Galatians 2, 1, you've got to be thinking 14 years after what? I mean, what, what are you talking about 14 years later? Now, friends, this will introduce you to the number one rule of Bible under, understanding, and that is you've got to read every verse in context. What happened before it, what happens after it? Because verse 1 and 2 are a continuation of a story that literally begins in verse 13 of chapter 1, which is the beginning of Paul's testimony as an apostle of Jesus. Now, think about that. If apostle is a pretty big word in the New Testament. And if it's a new word to you, let me tell you, it's just a title for a special emissary who was sent out by Jesus in the name and authority of Jesus in the power of Jesus to fulfill a special purpose of Jesus. And let me tell you, Jesus only picked a few guys that he gave that title to, and Paul was one of them. Consequently, Paul is going to use that apostolic authority to put the kibosh on this false teaching that is luring people off the path away from the gospel up, up, up in these Galatian churches. Now, let me talk about what the gospel is. The gospel is the good news that people can be saved by Jesus alone, by putting their faith in Jesus alone. I mean, Jesus plus nothing. Man, Paul is going to reiterate here that a relationship with Jesus alone has the power to save a lost person and to forgive a sinful person and to resurrect, you know, a spiritually dead person and change the life of a believing person and honestly reserve a place in heaven for a redeemed person. But Paul is really concerned because these false Jewish teachers that we call Judaizers, because they're aggressively teaching that you had to become Jewish first before you could become a follower of Jesus. You had to act like a Jew and dress like a Jew and, and take on the characteristics of a Jewish person before you could become a Christian. I mean, these jokers were basically saying, yeah, you know, believing in Jesus is important. That's good. You need to do that. But you also need to keep all the ceremonial laws of Moses and the Old Testament as well if you want to be saved. And man, when Paul hears this, his head almost explodes because that's false doctrine. Friends, teaching Jesus plus anything for salvation is a soul-destroying lie. And Paul is going to need to use his apostolic authority to condemn these false teachers, especially because he's doing it by mail. I mean, he's sending the book of Galatians to these folks up in the, these churches in southern Turkey by a messenger. And so he's going to share his testimony 
just so they remember, you know, in those churches in Galatia, that this is not Paul's opinion. Uh, this is not some he said, they said, take your pick, believe what you want to think. No, no. He's teaching with the authority of Jesus. These Judaizers are wrong. That gospel, is, that, that stuff they're teaching is dangerous. The gospel that saved you is right. Don't be seduced. Stick with it. So he starts sharing his story back in chapter 1, verse 13. And I just want to follow. I want you to follow with me through his testimony because it's kind of amazing, you know, how, you know, Jesus transformed Paul from an antagonist into an apostle. And he did this through four distinct seasons in Paul's spiritual life. And so let's just dig in. Look at verse 13 of chapter 1. Paul says, For you have heard of my previous way of life in Judaism, how intensely I persecuted the church of God and tried to destroy it. Now, I've told you many times that, you know, Paul went from the greatest persecutor of the church to the greatest preacher of Jesus. And he's going to kind of tell us this whole story about how that worked out right here. Now, uh, the, the story begins in Jerusalem, where Paul was essentially a bounty hunter. I mean, literally, he hated the gospel. He hated the church. He hated Jesus. And he thought, it was, he thought Christianity was a threat. And so he's doing the best he can to just squash it. And I mean, he is persecuting people, hurting people, killing people, imprisoning people. Brutal, right? Now, he's done it so much in Jerusalem that he hears there's a big gathering of Christians up in Damascus. So he's like, oh, I'll put a stop to that. And he goes to Damascus. And on the way, he meets Jesus. I mean, he meets the resurrected Jesus in such a profound way that it knocks him off his horse. And Jesus tells him, look, you go to Damascus and wait. I'm going to send somebody to tell you what to do. At the same time, Jesus goes to a dude in Damascus named Ananias and says, I want you to go share the gospel with Paul. And Ananias is like, Lord, are you sure about that? And yes, I am sure about it. And this begins the first stage of Paul's spiritual development. Ananias shares the gospel with him, leads him to a life-changing relationship with Jesus. Paul is baptized into Christ and a new era in his life begins. Now, Paul goes on to say that from Damascus, in verse 17, it says he went to Arabia. Now, he goes out into the wilderness here for some time to rethink everything, to be taught by Jesus. Honestly, I think to be tutored, you know, coached up by Jesus for three years, just like he coached up the other 11 apostles for three years to prepare him for, honestly, just a world-changing ministry. Now, think about how this works, man. He went from Damascus uh, to the desert. He spent some time studying with Jesus in the desert. Then he goes back to Damascus, which is kind of a gutsy move when you think about it. I mean, this is where he got saved, but this is also where everybody remembers his horrible past. And so he's kind of stuck in the middle, you know, the, the believers in Damascus, they don't know whether to trust him or not. The, the, the people who understood, you know, who he was as a Jewish persecutor, they hate him because they think he's a turncoat. So he spends a little time in Damascus and then he goes back to Jerusalem. All right. And when he gets to Jerusalem, man, if you think going to Damascus was bad, I mean, Jerusalem was worse. I mean, uh, the believers there were astounded at the change in his life. But all of his old Jewish friends, all of his old, you know, colleagues hated his guts because they thought he was a traitor. 
Now, friends, uh, he was only there for 15 days, and it got so hot for Paul that his uh, Christian friends, and Barnabas was one of them, had to load him up and get him out of, the, out of the country to keep him from getting killed. So they sent him up here to Caesarea. They put him on a boat, and he goes back to Tarsus, which is his hometown. And this begins the second stage in Paul's spiritual life development. Now, do you remember what Jesus said in Luke chapter 4 that no prophet is ever accepted in his hometown? This is Paul's hometown. And let me tell you, he goes back there to share the gospel with his family, share the gospel with his friends, try to make a difference in the name of Jesus. Do you know how much the New Testament tells us about his success and all the people he led to Christ in Tarsus? Zero. Zero. He was there, we think, for years. I mean, maybe as long as 10 years. And we think he led his sister and her kids to Christ. And as far as we know, that's all that happened. He preached, 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 shared, taught, served Christ with no applause and very little fruit until Barnabas shows up. Now, Barnabas uh, is uh, leading a dynamic multiracial church here in Antioch. I mean, it's amazing. This is like the first time this has happened, where you got Jews and Gentiles, people of different races, different ethnicities, all worshiping together. This church starts growing like crazy, and guess what happens? Barnabas is worn out. He's like, man, i got to get some help. And then he remembers meeting Paul, how sharp he was down here in Jerusalem. And so Barnabas Googles him, finds out he's over here in Tarsus, sends him a message and said, dude, why don't you come over here to Antioch and serve with me on staff? Paul immediately comes over and that begins the third stage in his spiritual development. Man, he gets to Antioch. Think about this. This is how God works so often in people's lives. He takes you from a season where you've been super faithful in obscurity and then he leads you to a place of great opportunity. And man, that's what happened with the Apostle Paul. Dude, when he got to Antioch, you know, all those youth group lessons, all those sermons, he'd been preaching to nobody in Tarsus. Man, he is ready to rock when he gets to Antioch. He starts teaching, it just boom. The church starts growing in number and spirit and generosity. And man, God is at work and people are getting saved. So much so that Paul and Barnabas hear about a, a, a famine that's going on in Jerusalem, they take up an offering in Antioch and use it to feed starving kids in Jerusalem. Who does that sound like? Dude, we're, soon, we're doing the same thing today. You know why? Because we're a New Testament church, and that's how it works. So Paul and Barnabas take up this offering, and then it says that the Lord sent them to Jerusalem to take care to the people who are suffering, but also... Paul wants to make sure that he and the apostles are all teaching the same gospel. And friends, that's where this trip back to Jerusalem right here, this is what Paul was writing about in Galatians 2.1 when it says 14 years later. So he gets saved, he goes to Jerusalem, 14 years later, he's back in Antioch, and man, he's taking care of business. So uh, from there, he goes back to Antioch, he and Barnabas have just an amazing continuation of ministry until the Holy Spirit speaks to the leaders of the church in Antioch and says, I want these two guys, Paul and Barnabas, to go on a church planting trip. I'm going to send them to boldly go where no man has ever gone before to preach the gospel all over Galatia. This is Galatia right here. 
And so, man, in Acts chapter 13 and 14, Paul and Barnabas, they leave, they go to Cyprus, they go to Perga, they go all up in here. They plant churches everywhere they go. Then they come back around, they encourage those guys and back home and then back to Jerusalem to tell the apostles, man, you're not going to believe what happened while we were on this amazing church planting trip. And this right here, this is the trip they're talking about in Galatians 1 when he says, 14 years later, I went to Jerusalem, this time with Barnabas, and I took Titus also. So 14 years have passed, you know, since his first visit to Jerusalem as a, as a follower of Christ. The first time he goes to Jerusalem, he goes as a brand new apostle. I mean, personally selected by Jesus, but he's only been a Christian like three years. The second time he goes to Jerusalem, he returns as a seasoned apostle pastor of a dynamic, beautifully racially diverse church in Antioch and a church planter that has crossed every racial boundary, every national boundary, every territorial boundary to take the gospel to anybody who would hear it. Now, just remember, Paul is writing all this down. So these Galatian Christians who are being led down the wrong path will know that he's just not sharing his opinion here. He is speaking as an apostle of Jesus with the same authority as those famous 11 guys that we, know we read about in the Gospels traveling all over the place with Jesus. Now look at the next few verses and how he establishes his authority to speak into the life of those Galatian churches. Man, just keep your Bible open. I'm going to start in verse 2 and I'm just going to walk you all the way through this chapter. Paul says in verse 2, I went to Jerusalem in response to a revelation. Now listen, Paul was not summoned by the other 11 apostles or the church in Jerusalem. Paul was sent there by Jesus so that he could tell the apostles what he's preaching. He can find out what they're preaching. Those guys can back him up as he's crossing all these racial and national lines in his ministry in Antioch. He says, I set before them the gospel that I preach among the Gentiles. He said, I did this privately to those who seemed to be leaders for fear that I was running my, my race in vain. Now, I think that Paul is so wise here. He said he met with those guys who seemed to be leaders privately. Now, you know what? You've got a tense conversation to have. You want to do that privately. They're not going to fight about this on Facebook. I mean, they're not going to have some shout match in a public forum. He shows civility and humility and unity is what he's going for. Paul's trying to do the right thing in the right way. But he also wants to be crystal clear that he and the apostles in Jerusalem are preaching the same message. And that is confirmed in verse 3 when it says, you know, not even Titus, who was with me, was compelled to be circumcised, even though he was an uncircumcised Greek follower of Jesus at the center of the Jewish world in Jerusalem. Now, friends, Paul and Barnabas brought Titus as a test case. I mean, they'd been preaching, you don't, have, you don't have to put your faith in Jesus plus all the Jewish ceremonial laws, plus the Jewish circumcision, plus any meritorious works. If you want to be saved, you put your faith in Jesus plus nothing. And the leaders in Jerusalem, I'm talking about Jesus' brother James, who was the leader of the church there, Peter, who was the apostle, uh, leader of the apostles there, the Jerusalem church, they all backed him up. Look at verse 4. This matter arose because some false brothers had infiltrated our ranks to spy on our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus to try to make us slaves. Slaves to what? Well, slaves to false doctrine, honestly. Slaves to that Jewish law that never saved anybody. Friends, Jesus said he fulfilled the Old Testament law when he replaced it with grace by dying on the cross and rising from the dead. And this is so important that Paul said, we did not give in to them for even a moment. 
so that the truth of the gospel might remain with you. Remain with you, Galatian believers. You don't have to become Jewish first. You don't have to follow the Jewish laws. Faith in Jesus is enough to be saved. And, and what would he say to you? He would say to you and me, you don't have to get your stuff together first. You don't have to change your appearance first. Uh, you, you don't have to start acting like other people first, achieve some moral level of goodness first. Dude, you put your faith in Jesus and he will save you just as you are. And then things will begin to change for you just like they changed for the Apostle Paul. Look at verse six. As for those who seem to be important, you know, whatever they are makes no difference to me. I mean, God doesn't judge by external appearance. Those men added nothing to my message. What's he saying? I shared what I've been preaching with the apostles, with Peter, their leader, James, the brother of Jesus, the leader of the church in Jerusalem. I mean, those guys got a lot of juice, y'all. Pretty important group of guys to the early church. But Paul said, when I told them what I was preaching, they did not add a thing to my message. I got my message from Jesus, just like they got their message from Jesus. We're all on the same level here. They, those guys did not add or subtract anything from what I've been preaching. Now, I know some of y'all are probably thinking by now, Cam, uh, either you or Paul are really belaboring this, <laughs> and maybe so. Uh, but I'll tell you in a few verses, you'll find out why. But look at verse 7. Paul says, on the contrary, they saw that I had been entrusted with the task of preaching the gospel to the Gentiles. Now, Gentiles are just non-Jewish people. I'm a Gentile. Anybody who's not Jewish is a Gentile. Just as Peter had been entrusted with preaching the gospel to the Jews. Now, it's interesting that Paul did lead Jewish people to Jesus. And Peter did lead Gentile people to Jesus. But strategically, Jesus deployed Paul to the non-Jewish world. And he deployed Peter to the Jewish world because he thought that's where they could both do the most good. Now, look at verse 8. For God was at work in the ministry of Peter as an apostle to the Jews, was also at work in my ministry as an apostle to the Gentiles. Now, he's going to drop some names here, y'all. Peter, James, John. I mean, James is the brother of Jesus. Peter is the leader of the apostles. John was Jesus' best friend. That's, that's three big names, y'all. They were reputed as pillars of the New Testament church and were. Paul says, they gave Barnabas and me the right hand of Christian fellowship when they recognized the grace that was given to me, the work, the joy, the, the new life that was given to me, they agreed that we should go to the Gentiles and they'll go to the Jews. All they asked was that we should continue to remember the poor, which is the very thing we were eager to do. I mean, good night. Part of the reason they came to Jerusalem for this meeting was to bring care and resources for the poor. But here's the point. They all agree. You don't have to be Jewish or anything else before you become a Christian. Uh, just like they said in Acts chapter 11, when Peter led Cornelius, that Roman centurion to Christ, the first Gentile ever to be led to Christ, when they heard this, they had no further objections, and man, they praised God, saying, so God has granted even the Gentiles repentance unto life. So here's the bottom line. The day of religious racism being accepted among God's people is over. It's over. Judging somebody because they're not Jewish or judging somebody because they are Jewish or they're not Greek or looking down on somebody because they didn't grow up religious or they grew up too religious, that kind of prejudging, that's over. We are all one in Christ, saved by the same gospel. They got that sorted out right there. Dude, if you don't like it, take it up with Jesus. Problem solved, right? <laughs> Sadly, no. Listen, they continue to struggle in their day just like we do in our day. And in verse 11, we find a sad but predictable picture 
of the kind of struggle people sometimes have to go through before they get their heart and their mind aligned with the gospel. And it all kind of culminated in Paul's confrontation of Peter's leadership fail. Fail. Now, friends, Peter's a great hero of our faith. I mean, you've got to know that. Uh, and in verse 9, even Paul said he's a pillar of the New Testament church. You know, the early church fathers tell us that Peter died a martyr's death, crucified by Nero in Rome because of his faith and his ministry for Jesus. He was a hero, but just like every hero, he had feet of clay, just like me, just like you. And I'm telling you, this next scene is pretty disappointing. Now, let's get real here. <clears throat> You're never going to meet a leader that doesn't disappoint you in some way. Uh, in fact, let me tell you something about me. If you get to know me well enough, I will disappoint you. I don't want to, not planning to, but, but I just got a pretty good idea that's going to happen. And friends, leaders in the New Testament church who messed up big time publicly were supposed to be confronted publicly, and that's what's getting ready to happen between Paul and Peter. Now look at verse 11. When Peter came to Antioch, <clears throat> excuse me, I opposed him to his face because he was clearly wrong. Look at verse 12. Before certain men came from James down in Jerusalem, man, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they arrived, you know, these Jewish big shots, well, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of what those who belonged to the circumcision group would say about him if they saw him fellowshipping with these Gentiles. Now let's hit pause here for a second. And let's talk about this circumcision group because it kind of sounds like an inappropriate nickname if you're asking me, but I tell you, Paul's ticked off when he writes this book, right? Here's what's happening. The circumcision group refers to, you know, back in verse four, that those false brothers who claim they're representing James in the church in Jerusalem. I don't know if that's true or not, but that's what they claimed. They were demanding that Gentile believers have to keep the ceremonial law of Moses that all the Jews grew up with. What was number one? All the male babies have to be circumcised. All of them. Circumcise them on the eighth day, just like Moses did. Jesus was circumcised. This is a Jewish tradition. They all got to be circumcised. Or we won't eat with you because you're a Gentile. We won't use the same. I wouldn't drink out of the same cup with you, uh, not eat the same food, wouldn't sit in the same room, wouldn't socialize with Gentiles. All of that was forbidden by the Jewish law because of these ceremonial laws that divided everybody into the clean and the unclean. And if you kept all the laws, you were clean. So not even all the Jews were clean, but none of the Gentiles were clean. They were all unclean because they didn't keep those ceremonial laws. Now, friends, those ceremonial laws became outdated the minute Jesus rose from the dead and established a new covenant based on grace rather than rules. Now, friends, teaching that Christ followers must keep the Old Testament laws was ignorance at best and false doctrine at worst if they started to push it. And, dude, they were pushing it. <laughs> I mean, sadly, they pushed it so hard that Peter went along with them and he knew better. I mean, before these guys come up from Jerusalem, Peter's cool with eating with the Gentiles. Pass the bacon, man. Let's have some more of that barbecue. How about some shrimp and lobster, y'all? Now, where are them ribs? I mean, he's all good with it, right? And then these Judaizers show up and they're like, you're eating unclean food. And they condemn this new diverse fellowship where Gentiles and Jews are eating together and worshiping together and praying together and putting their hands on each other and, you know, pray all that stuff. 
And so, man, they started condemning that, and Peter goes along with it. And because he's Peter, he's such a profound example, other people started following his example. And in verse 13, the other Jews in the church saw Peter cave in, so they joined, and look what Paul calls it, in his hypocrisy. So by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas was led astray. I mean, good night. Peter and Barnabas know better than this. They were just in the meeting in Jerusalem where all the apostles agreed. This kind of prejudice, this kind of division, racial division is over. It's hypocritical to act like this. Now listen, Paul is writing the book of Galatians to all those churches he planted up in southern Turkey. And as embarrassing as it was, Peter and Barnabas are glad he's telling the story of calling them out in chapter 2. Because friends, this kind of Jesus plus anything version of salvation is dangerous. Peter and Barnabas made a mistake. They knew it. And when Paul called them out on it, they owned it. Now, this, this kind of teaching could split the church. Uh, this kind of teaching could lead people to believe that you've you got to give your life to Jesus plus do 50 other things to be saved rather than just humble faith in Jesus alone. And so Paul says in verse 14, when I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel. Now stop right there and think about this. That, that phrase, in line, is a translation of the Greek uh, word orthopodeo, which is the word we get orthopedics from. And it's like your feet are broken. And so you just can't walk in a straight line. And Paul is saying this rule-centered Jesus plus whatever legalism is not walking in line with the gospel of grace. So Paul confronts it. Look at the next verse. He said, I said to Peter in front of them all, you're a Jew, and yet you live like a Gentile, you know, been living like a Gentile with us, not, uh, and not like a Jew. How is it then that you now force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? Peter, bro, you didn't have any problem eating bacon and barbecue before those jokers showed up. Why are you flipping now? Look at verse 15. We who are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, which again is that reference to people who don't keep the ceremonial laws, the Jews thought they were unclean, call them sinners, he said, even though we are Jewish by birth, we know that a man is not justified by observing the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ, not justified by the law. He says, so we too have put our faith in Jesus that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by observing the law, because by observing the law, no one is going to be justified. Now look at this. Did you notice that Paul uses the word justified three times in these two verses? Now, here's another rule of Bible interpretation. When somebody uses the same word three times in two verses, that's a pretty big idea, all right? Now, justified is a huge idea, huge idea in the new covenant. Justified means that when God looks at me after I put my faith in Jesus, he sees me just as if I'd never sinned, like I have no sin. How can that be? He declares that I am righteous in Christ. How? Because Jesus took my sin on himself, paid for my sins on the cross, and when he rose from the dead, man, he made it possible for me to be forgiven and declared righteous. Ken talked about this last week. And man, I stand justified before God just as if I'd never sinned, guilty of none of my sins, past, present, and future because of the amazing forgiveness of Jesus on the cross. Friends, this is why it's so offensive. 
It's so offensive to God to think that you might be able to do anything to help yourself get saved. I mean, you might be thinking, Cam, what are you, why are we talking about this? This is a history lesson, bro. Why are you taking us through all these Jewish customs? Well, I, I, I know you're not really on the Jewish custom thing. But have you ever heard anybody say anything like, um, you know, I just need to get right, and then I'm going to give my life to Jesus. <clears throat> I need to get right, and then I'm going to give my life to Jesus. What are they saying? What are they saying they're trusting in? I'm going to trust in my discipline, my getting my stuff together, plus faith in Jesus. Friends, that is insulting to Jesus and impossible for you. I mean, if you could get your stuff together before giving your life to Jesus, you wouldn't need Jesus. But you can't, and nobody ever has. And this is why we humble ourselves, and we say, Lord Jesus, please be the leader of my life. Be the forgiver of my sins. I know I'm a moral failure. I know there's no good thing in me. I need to be forgiven. I want to be saved. Please, Jesus, do for me what I cannot possibly do for myself. And that's why Paul ends this whole section of Galatians with a reminder of the true gospel. It's a reminder of the true gospel. Let me finish with verse 20. This is one of my favorite verses, y'all. I think it's the most important verse in the book myself. Uh, I just love it, but let me read it for you, okay? Paul says in verse 20, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. There's the hope right there that Kim was talking about last week. The life I live in the body, I now live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Now think about what that means. I've been crucified with Christ means my sins have been forgiven because they were all paid for when Christ was crucified in my place on the cross. My sin, past, present, future, washed away by the blood of Christ when I put my faith in him. He goes on to say, I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. You know, the two polar enemies of the gospel are legalism. You know, I got to do this, 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 plus, you know, have faith in Christ. Or an abuse of grace that's like, well, man, look, I, can, I gave my life to Jesus. I can do what I want to. He'll forgive me. I mean, that's his job. And both of those weird extremes are, are so far from the true believer, you know, who just humbly, humbly commits himself to letting the Christ who lives in him live through him. Now, friends, when Paul says, the life that I now live, I live by the Son of God who lives in me, wow, you know, he is in me, directing me, shaping me, convicting me, living through me. And man, that's where my life begins to change. You know, I have a friend of mine who told me this week that he was in a meeting and somebody made a ridiculous racial slur and he was so afraid offended by that foolish, thoughtless remark that he just unloaded on the guy. I mean, unloaded on him, let him have it, humiliated him. <laughs> and that is so uncharacteristic of my friend that everybody in the room was dead silent. I mean, they didn't know what to say. And he said, Kim, I said my piece and I stormed out of that meeting. And he said, the minute I did, the Christ who lives in me started convicting me about blowing up like that and showing that inappropriate anger and just not being civil or humble or unified. He said, man, I'm telling you, I tried to justify what I said for four days and the Lord would not let up. He would not let up on me. And so on the fourth day, he said, I called everybody that had been in that meeting and they all worked for him. But he said, I called all of them back into the office, back to the same spot. 
He said, I got them all together and I just humbled myself and I apologized to that group for getting so angry. I apologized to the guy that I unloaded on. I mean, and let me tell you, he was dead wrong. But he said, I apologize for unloading on him like that in public and in front of everybody. And I asked them all to forgive me, which of course they did. Now friends, we all make mistakes like that. Peter did, Barnabas did, I do, you do. But you know, when Christ is living in you, he's not going to let that go. <laughs> he's going to compel you to do the right thing, to do the loving thing, to do what love demands, what integrity demands because you have a relationship with him. Now you can refuse to follow the leading of the Holy Spirit if you want to. Just make your heart hard and your faith cold and you'll lose your testimony. But I'll tell you, when my buddy humbled himself and obeyed the Lord and got that crew back together and apologized and asked for forgiveness, you know what happened to him? His stock went up a thousand percent. You know why? Because people saw Christ in him, even by the way he handled his mistakes. And Peter does the same thing after this mess in Antioch. I mean, read, read Acts chapter 15. In Acts chapter 15, they have a big conference in Jerusalem after all the stuff's going on. And Paul and Barnabas and Peter are all in Jerusalem and they go through this issue again. And Peter and Barnabas humbly align themselves with the gospel and with Paul. And friends, you and I are saved today by that same gospel because they did. And that's how it's supposed to be. Paul says, the life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me. He loved me long before I loved him, but he loved me and gave himself for me. Now, friend, if you cannot remember the day that you humbled yourself and put your faith in God, it's because you haven't done that yet. If you had, you would know. I'm not talking about your mama doing something to you when you're a little baby. I'm talking about you putting your faith in Jesus. And if you haven't done that yet, today could be your day, man. Listen, if you wonder if you're a Christian, you're probably not. Uh, not yet. I mean, you're, you're, you're doing the right stuff. You're listening. That's good. You, you're one decision away right now. Man, talk to somebody on the chat today. Just tell them, I got a question, man. How do I put my faith in Jesus? Listen, you can put your faith in Christ today. We'll baptize you next Sunday on Father's Day. Dude, if you're hesitating today because you think it's Jesus plus, or I got Jesus plus getting it all together or beating this addiction or changing some habit or, you know, cleaning up first, friend, none of that can happen until Christ is living in you. So give your life to Jesus and he will become the power that will enable you to change. Friends, you don't have to hesitate another day. And can I just say, if you're not saved today because you believe a lie, you believe you're not good enough, you believe you sin too much, you believe you're just not the kind of person Jesus would love, that is a lie. And I hope as you've seen these men battle for the truth in this chapter today, you know that Jesus is battling for you. Dude, he loves you. He loves lost, proud, religious people. And he loves lost, promiscuous, you know, irreligious people. He has a place in his heart for everybody today. So friend, we're preparing to help you express your faith in Jesus through baptism next week. But I'm telling you, I would not wait seven days. I wouldn't wait seven minutes. Get on the chat right now. Tell somebody. I want to be a part of the family of God. I want my sins forgiven. I want Jesus to be the leader and forgiver of my life and everything will begin to change for you. Father, thank you for this opportunity you give us today, you know, to come to this place of decision and just make a decision. And I pray, God, that there will be those who will make a decision. I mean, Paul did and it changed his life. 
You know, Peter did change his life. When they messed up, they all made the right decision and they got back in unity. And I pray, God, that there will be many of us here today who will make the wise decision and be blessed because we did. And we pray this in the strong name of Jesus, Lord. Amen. Amen. Hey friends, as we close today, I wanna to ask you some questions and I, I want you to think about these questions individually, but I also hope that you'll use these questions to engage the people around you, to let it spark conversation, maybe in your home today or somewhere this week. The first one is this, Paul's spiritual life, it developed in four distinct seasons. That's what Cam talked about. And so. I want you to think about your spiritual life, what season you're in, and maybe what season you grew the most. Another one would be, can you think of a time that maybe spiritually someone connected with you and, and they called you out in love on something? What did you learn from that moment? And then has there ever been a time in your life when you know, because of integrity, because of where you are spiritually, that you maybe reached out and asked for forgiveness? And how did that go for you? Friends, we want you to know that we stand ready to talk to you about these questions or any other questions that you might have. We're ready to pray with you about any of these, about any decision you need to make. And if you're ready to make a decision or, or you need prayer, all you need to do is click on the connect card button in the chat or go to CompassionChristian.com and select the online connect card and we'll get connected to you and tell you about the life-changing relationship that Jesus offers to every one of us. Your life can change and that change can happen today or tomorrow or maybe even June 21st at our prayer uh, and worship night when we're gonna do baptisms. Maybe you can be baptized there and begin a brand new life-changing relationship with Jesus. Will you pray with me? Father, thank you for today and for the chance together as family to be challenged to center our lives on you, Father, and to live our life not in fear or worry, but to live our life in freedom because of what you've done for us, Father. We love you and we thank you for loving us. And it's in your son's name I pray, amen. Friends, don't forget the family meeting that's happening on Monday, June 22nd at seven o'clock. You guys have a great week. We'll see you next week.